Welcome to Econa Day Unplugged. Today is Tuesday, February 6, 2018. I am Ann Pickard, Econa Day's Chief Economist, and with me today are Jeremy Hawkins in London and Mark Pender in the U.S. Jeremy and I, Mark and I, are recording our 100th podcast today, and we will be counting going forward. We thought it would be interesting to compare what the global economy looked like two years ago when we started recording. Global economy looked like two years ago uh-huh. when we started and with today's economy. Mark, we'll start to talk about the U.S. economy. Jeremy okay. will cover Europe and the U.K. and I will wrap up with Asia Pacific. Mark, start. Fire away. Okay, well, um, it's an interesting comparison. Uh, I think uh, generally the idea of a price malaise was part of the talk back then. Uh, The consumer wasn't uh, as doing as showing as much life. Uh, Neither, of course, were consumer confidence, uh, business confidence as well, and, of course, the Dow. Well, let's look at the vital signs at the end of uh, 2015. GDP was at a 2.9% rate that year, uh, 2015. That's a pretty good rate. Uh, And it was being uh, nicely held up by the consumer, even though there wasn't a lot of talk about acceleration in the consumer. It was still personal consumption was at at a 2.7% annualized rate that year that that's also uh, was steady same thing with the uh, with the prices though is very little life uh, the CPI was at 2.1 percent um, total CPI not much above that now the core was only at 1.6 which is where it is now and average hourly earnings and of course that's the big news after last week's pop-up to 2.9 percent on the year-on-year rate the expansion high it was only 2.6 percent then I mean there's not a lot of difference which I think maybe puts um, Friday's uh, 2.9% rate, a little bit in perspective uh, and uh, the reaction of the markets, but we'll talk about the markets in a minute. The unemployment rate was just moving under 5%. Of course, that's been a uh, very important indicator since uh, falling almost to 4% now, 4.1%. And it was on its uh, beginning of, of that uh, downward slope. Payrolls were doing very well, better than now. 200,000 plus was the uh, usual. Uh, you didn't hardly see a one anything under there, and you had an occasional 300. Uh, that is very strong growth. Now, let's talk about, however, uh, how the markets were doing. Now, compared to that solid uh, setup, uh, the Dow was flat at 17,600. That's 37% below where it is now, at least the last time I checked this morning. <laughs> it's moving around. I think the Dow is at 24,200, somewhere like that. That is a big uh, difference. Think about that. In a two years of return at 37%, um, uh, very uh, uh, striking. The, t- the yields really aren't, however. The 10-year uh, it was just over 2%. The two-year was just under 1%. Uh, 100% spread. It's, uh, that spread is now narrowed to about 70, but that's not, a, you know, uh, it doesn't uh, appear to be a, like the brakes on, considering during this time, of course, the Fed began its uh, rate hike sequence. Um, the dollar was about 10% uh, higher than it is. Oil was under 40. Gold was at a couple hundred dollars below. But you know what? Bitcoin was not even at $450. And I think that that's really the big difference between now and then. Uh, the, the economy pretty much 
stable. If we're not at full employment, we're moving toward it, and that's what was going on two years ago. Still no inflation, still modest uh, wages, but look at that stock market, 37% there. Uh, and now that I think we're, we're seeing a lot of that volatility or a little bit of that volatility. It took a, a while to express itself in the markets, those gains, 1% gains a day through Jan- the beginning of January, for instance, just this last January, are unsustainable. So I think that that's the picture for uh, it. And it's something the Federal Reserve wouldn't really want to talk about or tries not to talk about. And that's, um, you know, the stock market asset values. And that seems to have been the big difference between now and then. Thanks, Mark. Jeremy? Okay, well, the European economic backdrop, I think, has probably changed rather more than it has on Mark's side of the pond. We go back, what, a couple of years ago, Eurozone growth was running at a, well, an only sparring annual rate of about 1.7% and, and really showing no obvious sign of any acceleration. Inflation was at minus 0.2% and just underlying how bad things were, the ECB was just about to introduce zero interest rates for the first time. It did so in March 2016. And also it's going to increase its uh, QE asset purchase program as well. Now roll on to now and growth is up around 2.7%. Well, that's the best we've had in the last seven years or so. And if these PMI surveys we had of late running to go by, that could hit 3% or so this quarter. So certainly the real economy really has changed significantly. Now, the ECB may not have changed interest rates, so we still got a zero referee rate there. But it has begun tapering its QE program. And I guess there's a pretty good chance that that will be completed by September. So um, policy is shifting. However, you know, the process has really been painfully slow, and that just reflects what's still this ongoing disconnect between the real economy and inflation. Headline inflation, by all means, has crept up to 1.3% as of last month. But if we look at sort of the underlying rate, we use the ECB's so-called narrow core rate, that's currently running at 1.0%. And where was it in where was it in January 2016? It was at 1.0%. So in other words, some things have changed, but some things really haven't changed at all. What I think we are seeing sort of a more perhaps a fundamental shift is from the political side in some ways, which will be something investors really will want to, uh, to bear in mind as we go forward. Um, we go back a couple of years ago, all the major decision making for the Eurozone pretty well came out of Germany, where I mean Chancellor Merkel just sort of towered over all things political. But since she failed to get a majority in last September's elections, it's it's kind of opened the door to a new dynamic in the shape of this, this talked about increased Franco-Italian cooperation. Now, it's early days yet, but you know, if this alliance really does push forward, it could well soften the European Union's position on debt and deficit and certainly increase the potential for higher public spending and indeed a more friendly attitude towards introducing risk sharing measures for the financial sector. So that's very much something to bear in mind. Something else that's changed as well, I think, and um, I suppose what's happening in the financial markets at the moment will be a good test of just how deeply this has changed. What appears to have been a shift in investors' perceptions of the Eurozone stability or, or even credibility. You know, not very long ago, it seemed like a Greek financial crisis was all but a weekly event and, um, and, and Greek debt, no one wanted to touch it. But, you know, if we look at how Greek assets, in particular bond markets, been performing over the last year or so, then Greek bonds really have been almost the must-have asset of the last 12 months. 
uh, in February 2016, 10-year Greek bonds were trading 10, 10 and a quarter percentage points. That's 10 and a quarter percentage points over their German counterparts. That spread is now down to around three percentage points. So there's been this massive shift in investor sentiment in favor of what was previously always assumed to be you know, one of the highest risk members of the eurozone. I think some of the underlying issues are clearly still there. I mean, Greek debt and indeed several other countries' debt ratios are still far too high. But banks are now a much better place than they were back in the last financial crisis to withstand new shocks. And there's certainly a greater belief, I think, in the commitment and indeed perhaps capability of the likes of the ECB and economic policy in general. Were there to be another major global crisis, I guess stresses would quickly reappear, but perhaps not quite to the extent that we've seen in, pre in the past. So now at least it looks as if a Eurozone breakup talk, which say not so long ago was very vocal indeed, is now very much on the back burner. For the UK, in many ways, it's more a case of what hasn't changed. I'll just quickly quote from a piece I found I wrote in the Econoday calendar back on the 2nd of February 2016. And quote myself, the bottom line is that over coming months, the Brexit issue now seems more likely than ever to dominate price activity in UK financial markets in general and the pound in particular. Sterling has already lost around 8% against the euro since early December in no small way due to investor worries that the UK's membership of the EU might not last much longer. Now, that Brexit referendum, of course, is held back on June the 23rd, 2016. And ever since then, the fallout has been very much the dominant force shaping investors' view of sterling and increasingly expectations of how the UK economy is going to perform going forwards. And as it turned out, the UK, if anything, has probably held up rather better than most people expected. So despite the Bank of England's warnings immediately after the referendum that there'll be a recession, there wasn't one, and the economy didn't do too badly. However, if we look at, you know, from what was a position of consistent outperformance by the UK economy versus the Eurozone during the five years immediately before the referendum, you know, the economy here has clearly slowed. In fact, it flatlined for much of 2017 and the rates now are well short of what we're seeing being achieved on the other side of the channel. Um, but the implications of, of that for BOE policy, of course, are still very complicated. By all means, we've got slower growth on one hand, but we've got the Brexit response by the pound, which is rapid depreciation, um, lifting UK inflation on the other. Now, we know that the central bank's initial response after the referendum was to cut interest rates and to boost its quantitative easing asset purchase program. Um, so it did ease significantly. But since then, June... Um, but back then, in June 2016, UK inflation was only 0.4%, so well below its 2% target, and easing wasn't a simple option for the bank. However, now, of course, it's different. Since February of 2017, inflation in the UK has been above its 2% target. It's overshot that rate every month since, and it's now 3% as of the latest numbers. That really reflects higher import prices, but when you're threatening the central bank's credibility, yeah, where push comes to shove it, I think it really caused the central bank in the end just to bite the bullet and they had to raise interest rates for the first time in a decade last November. But the dilemma of what to do with policy remains and um, no doubt will be highlighted by the minutes of Thursday's MPC meeting. So some things have changed for the UK, a lot of things haven't, but really as far as a big issue for financial markets for the UK and indeed many ways for Europe's concern, it's what on the earth this Brexit is finally going to look like. Because we speak at this moment, no one's really got the foggiest idea. 
Thanks, Jeremy. When one looks at Asia-Pacific, one needs to separate the industrial developed countries with the emerging economies. I put Japan and Australia in the developed category. Australia, according to the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia statement last night, uh, has is tooling along at approximately 3% growth. This is really not very much changed from two years ago. It should be pointed out that Australia has not had a full-blown recession since 1991. You heard me correctly, unlike just about everyone else globally. But what they have been struggling with is to move the economy from an export-dependent economy to a more domestically-oriented economy. Export-dependent should mean exports to China, basically. Um, In Japan... It's been struggling to recover from its very old crash. The Bank of Japan continues to flood the the market with money in the hopes of building inflation to its 2% target. That's unchanged from two years ago. At this point, though, they are only a halfway there, a 0.9% on the year. On a quarterly basis, GDP has grown now for seven consecutive quarters – That's something like a record. With fourth quarter GDP due next week, expectations are for growth to be a measly 0.2% on the quarter. The Bank of Japan, though, continues to buy bonds and ETFs to flood the market with currency. At this point, the unemployment rate is at 2.8%. That should mean that there would be pressure on wages as this cost plus boost to inflation, but it still is very, I can't really see it at this point. Then we have the emerging economies in Asia, and China, of course, and India are the two biggest. China's economy, according to GDP data, has increased at a remarkably stable 67 to 6.9% for the eight quarters of the past two years. At the same time, India's growth has fluctuated between 9.1% and 5.7%. That's year on year. As the Modi government institutes changes to make the economy more modern and efficient, and these changes at this juncture appear to have weighed on growth. The latest PMIs for Asia indicate that growth is at a much slower pace than in the developed economies, and they are tracking approximately around an average of about 51, a reading of 51.0. Singapore is the low with 46.4. This is manufacturing PMIs currently with Vietnam high at 53.4. So the average there is much slower, lower than the industrial con- countries. In comparison, January for Australia was 58.7 and, um, was, and Japan was 54.8. So again, everybody seems to be growing, but 
the emergings are still a separate category. As far as markets go, the equity market in particular seems to follow what happens the day before in the U.S., i.e. overnight they really tanked. But again, they will bounce up if the U.S. market does today. That's about it for today. Until next week, thank you all.